Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 16th, 2022, and there's only really one story in the newspapers today. And in one of our minds, it's Russia and the Ukraine. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty about what exactly is happening. The Wall Street Journal suggests, uh, quoting the NATO chief, that Russia continues to build up its forces near the Ukraine, even though the Russians are claiming that they're not. The New York Times chimes in, saying that NATO uh, says there's no sign of a Russian pullback from near Ukraine. It's interesting that this image from the New York Times is of a Ferris wheel. I think it's in Kiev. And it reminds me of that famous moment in the 1949 movie, Carol Reed's movie, The Third Man, in which um, we get a lecture about the nature of power and Machiavelli in Switzerland. So maybe, maybe the New York Times editors are more sophisticated than we think they are. A lot of chatter about what's really going on. One person who's been doing a lot of thinking for many years about Russia and particularly Vladimir Putin is my guest today, Angela Stent. She's the author of a, of a book, Putin's World, Russia Against the West and With the Rest. Um, also, um, and, and, and she's a prolific writer. She had a piece in Foreign Policy on the Putin Doctrine, uh, subtitled from last month, a move on Ukraine has always been part of the plan. And I'm quoting the piece she wrote, the current crisis between Russia and Ukraine is a reckoning that has been 30 years in the making. It is about much more than Ukraine and its possible NATO membership. It is about the future of the European order crafted after the Soviet Union's collapse. And I'm thrilled that uh, Angela is joining us from Washington, D.C. So, Angela, perhaps you might uh, elucidate a little bit on Putin's world and his doctrine and why this is a significant historical moment in international political history. Well, thank you for having me on your show. And I think we are at an inflection point at the moment. I mean, if you think about Putin, his background uh, from a, a poor hard scrabble childhood in Leningrad. Uh, he um, pulls himself out of a rut, if you like, by becoming a judo champion. Uh, in uh, um, He was uh, at age 26, he was the judo champion of Leningrad. And those judo skills um, inform part of, I think, his view of the world. Uh, he then went on to uh, join the KGB. He was a mid-level KGB officer in uh, Dresden, uh, a city in East Germany, one of the few that didn't get West German television. Uh, he was there during the Gorbachev years, so he entirely missed the period of the sort of flowering of... Yeah, Angela, I, I actually visited, I was making a movie about democracy, and I visited that building where he was situated ah. in Dresden, where he was surrounded by a crowd, and I'm not sure if, if you argue this, but a lot of people suggest that his mentality was shaped that evening when there was an angry crowd outside the Russian consulate in Dresden, and in, in many ways he feared for his life, but he actually stood the crowd down. 
Well, he did. And then he describes, right, burning. Everybody wanted to see their confidential secret police files. And so he and his colleagues stuffed them in the furnace, trying to burn all of them, and the furnace exploded. But yes, I think that was a, a very important moment in his life. Plus, he tried to get some help from Moscow, and nobody picked up the phone. And so we've seen him since then. Yes, he's afraid of the street. He's afraid of crowds. Uh, he then lost his job uh, because Germany was united. He goes back to, it was still the Soviet Union then, and then the country collapses. So when he talks about the collapse of the Soviet Union being a great geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, uh, I think most of us could think of worse ones in the 20th century. It's very personal for him. And that's where uh, we start in terms of where we are now, because he believes uh, that as a result of the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia was reduced to a smaller country in the 1990s. The economy was in free fall. It was a chaotic situation. He believes Russia was humiliated by the West, by the United States imposing its own foreign policy on Russia and the United States and, and its allies in NATO deciding that the way to reorder European security after the Soviet collapse was to use NATO as the main instrument and to enlarge NATO, uh, but that did not include Russia. Uh, something was established, the NATO-Russia Council, but Russia has ever since then felt that it didn't have a stake in the system or a commitment to it. And now Putin is saying it's time to declare that system dead. Uh, we're in a multipolar world and we want to review and revise the post-Cold War settlement and we want to have back our own sphere of influence in the post-Soviet space, but maybe- Angela, you're making a good case for Putin and Putinism. <laughs> Do you believe this argument or is he using this as an excuse to divert perhaps domestic focus on an economic crisis or a poor standard of living on foreign policy crisis, which has been done many times throughout history? Well, you know, he's had a very consistent message on this for the last 15 years, at least 15 years ago this month, he gave a major speech at the Munich Security Conference where he uh, criticized the United States for dominating the world, for threatening Russia. So I think he's by now convinced himself um, that Russia you know, has a right to be treated as a great power and as an equal of the United States. And that means it should be able to dominate its neighbors. So Angela, in, in, 20, uh, sorry, in 2014, you wrote a, a, an interesting piece, Why America Doesn't Understand mm -hmm. Putin. I think it may have been in response to another Ukraine crisis. Should we need to understand Putin? Is there, is, should we be making an attempt to get into his mind and understand things from his perspective? Well, I think it's important if you're dealing with any country and particularly with an adversary to try and understand how they think. And we have a lot of trouble understanding that because this is a very closed system. It's run by people from the intelligence services. So uh, it's a black box in many ways. But you need to try and understand it if you're trying to predict as we are now, you know, is there going to be a kinetic war in Ukraine? Are troops going to move in and take Kiev? Or is this all an elaborate bluff to get us to the negotiating table? So well, what's your sense, Angela? Because it seems to me, as someone who doesn't know very much about what they're talking to, that Putin is, however good he is at judo and telling stories, he's very good at bluffing and counter-bluffing. And he has the West, and particularly a very weak president like Biden on the run. Is that fair at the moment? 
Yes, we're, I mean, we're all responding to his agenda. He, you know, they sent these two treaties to the United States and NATO in December, and everybody jumped. We've been running around, flurry of diplomacy, uh, meetings, endless meetings, people, European leaders going to Moscow, uh, European leaders going to Kiev. So he has us in any way where he wants us uh, running around. But what's interesting is that this administration may be weak, but it has pushed back. And what's quite extraordinary is the extent to which the US and Britain have published intelligence reports detailing what the Russians are trying to do. We're calling, they're trying to call their bluff too. We're in an age of information warfare. And I'm not sure that Putin actually expected that. So yeah, on the one hand, we're responding- and You don't agree, yeah. Angela, with, uh, we, we, and I know you know her very well, Anne Applebaum, she's been on the show, I know her quite well. She had a very influential piece in The Atlantic at the weekend about why the West diplomacy with Russia keeps failing. Anne is very critical of, of US and, and particularly uh, British diplomacy. Do you not agree with her? Well, I think certainly um, the Britain, the United States and other European countries have allowed um, these Russians to park their money and their influence in the West. Uh, I agree with that. And you clearly need greater controls on that. Uh, but I don't think there's a single explanation for all of this. Uh, and I, I don't know, you know, if you sanction some of these people and they may be sanctioned going forward if there is a war, I'm not sure how much difference that has in the short run. Although in the longer run, I would agree if these people had to invest their own money in Russia, they'd want to have a better system there with the rule of law. What about this system in Russia? We, uh, Peter Pomerantsev's an old friend. He wrote a wonderful book, This Is Not Propaganda, about the Putin-esque system of disinformation that's emerging. He sees this attack on this war against, what he calls a war against truth, as the heart of Putin's uh, ideology. We've had a number of shows. at Catherine Belton, the FT correspondent, who writes about dirty money and Putin's role in that. How do you make ideological sense of Putin outside this nostalgia for the Soviet Union? I'm not sure. That, I mean, I don't know whether Putin himself has an ideology. I mean, he's gone from being, you know, a KGB agent to allegedly now a religious person. You know, when he met George Bush for the first time, he was wearing a cross that survived. You but know, he's also he's one of the richest men in the world. He's a multi-billionaire. I mean, there must be more than just being religious and... And, and wishing for the Soviet Union, he's enormously powerful and wealthy. And, and, and that wealth and power is rooted in this system of disinformation that he's built. Yes, but you you know you were asking about an ideology. He now puts Russia forward as you know a supporter of uh, conservative values, quote unquote, as the true Christianity, and also as the supporter of all autocratic regimes around the world. Uh, so that's part of the at least the ideology they they put. Do you think he believes it, Angela, or is this the 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 uh, the mist which he he creates? But behind that. He and, and Pomerantsev writes brilliantly about this. He sort of he relies on the philosophy of Surkov and this idea of just perpetual disinformation. So I'm not one of those people um, who believes that, you know, everything is completely cynically run. I do. I mean, I of course, he's he's very wealthy. And of course, the people around him and he himself want to stay in power and keep their assets. I understand that. But that doesn't mean that they don't also uh, believe 
you know, that Russia is a great power. They want to flex their muscles. Uh, he is history man, Putin. I mean, he writes a lot about history, uh, his own interpretation of history. So I think you can you can be both. You can be very wealthy and want to maintain your power, but you can also sustain that with a system of beliefs. And I think by now he seems himself as one of the czars that can gather in the lands uh, that were lost um, when the Soviet Union collapsed. So I don't think those things are mutually incompatible. What is uh, Putin's power and his, I don't know whether you call it credibility or grip on power, uh, tell us about this new world order. I've got Moises Naim, I'm sure you know him very well as well. He has a he wrote a book a few years ago called The The End of Power, and now he has a new book, surprise, surprise, called The Revenge of Power, How Autocrats Are Reinventing Politics for the 21st Century. To, to what extent do you see Putin as actually reinventing politics for the 21st century? In, in other words, is he a major 21st century historical figure? Um, I think... You know, <laughs> we're in the early days still, third decade. Um, I think he probably will be viewed as a major figure because he is he and the people around him are using all these cyber tools and the disinformation uh, and the social networks to exactly cast doubt on, you know, is uh, what what the truth is in a post truth world, you know, alternative facts. And so I think it's the, pom the Pomerantsev line. Yeah, I, th I mean, I think Peter is is right about a lot of that, and I think that that is the they operate in the in this gray zone, and they excel at whataboutism. Every time you criticize them for something, they say, "But what about you know the U.S. did this or Britain did this?" So of course that's part of his if, playbook, and but also it's very old fashioned. It's the raw use of military power. I mean, Russia then is acting much more like a twentieth or even nineteenth century uh, country, and because that's really what it has, it doesn't really have that much soft power. It doesn't have much economic attraction. Uh, it's, you know, its economy is the size of, or per capita GDP, the size of that of Italy. So yes, uh, it's using um, all the all these tools to relativize everything and to disrupt. It's a disruptive power. Uh, that's really one of its major features. Uh, it's at the heart of a new disruptive world order, perhaps a new concert of Europe. Lots of pieces about Putin and Xi now, the, 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 apparently the world's too top authoritarians having teamed up. To what extent do you think this Ukrainian crisis has somehow been coordinated with the Chinese, perhaps somehow with the Olympics, perhaps with some impending crisis over Taiwan? So I don't think I don't think there's been coordination over this because the Chinese, you know, even in 2014, they were not happy with the annexation of Crimea and the launch of a war in eastern Ukraine, even though, of course, they came to Russia's rescue. And if you look at what China says it stands for, which is territorial integrity, sovereignty, non-interference, I don't think they would look kindly on an actual war with Ukraine. Now, they've backed up uh, Russia's claims about the, the NATO shouldn't enlarge anymore, it should retreat to 1997 borders, and that Russia has a right to security guarantees. And of course, Putin reiterated that uh, Russia supports a one-China policy. But I, I doubt that very much of this has been coordinated. But what Putin knows is that he has China's back if he does go into Ukraine, or even with what he's doing now, um, and that I don't think he'd be doing this if he didn't have this growing strategic partnership with China. We have a window into Putin's world from Angela Stent, the author of Putin's World, uh, Russia Against the West and with the rest. 
Uh, Angela is one of the, the West's leading uh, scholars, analysts, and perhaps critics of, of Vladimir Putin. We're talking to her about the Ukrainian crisis, how to deal with it, and how to get out of it. Uh, Angela, we're going to take a short break, and then afterwards, I want to talk about the danger of war and how we're going to try and fix this problem. So stay with us, everyone, and we'll be back with Angela Stent talking Putin in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We're back with Angela Stent, the author of Putin's World, uh, the Brookings uh, Institute uh, scholar, expert, longtime expert on Russia. Um, Angela, you're Husband is Daniel Jurgen, another leading geostrategic thinker. He was on the show recently, and he articulated a fear that in this crisis we're stumbling into war like the First World War. No one quite wants it, but the momentum will lead us to war. Are you fearful in any way that this could result in actual horrible violence, that the Russians might invade Ukraine, that might trigger a broader conflict? I mean, it's entirely possible. If you if you look at the troops, they now have 150,000 of them surrounding Ukraine on three sides. Um, that's certainly enough to march in and take Kiev. It's, by the way, not enough to occupy Ukraine. But I think what makes many people very worried when they look at it, if there were, if such a war were to start, um, it's not just going to be confined to Russia and Ukraine. And then you get to the NATO question, right? The, in, if you're in the NATO alliance, there's something called Article 5. And if you're attacked, there's collective defense and NATO will come to defend you. Well, you know, Poland is a neighbor of Ukraine's. You could see a situation once a war starts and things get out of hand. You could see a cyber attack, maybe. Uh, you could see, and, and it really, it's, it's very chilling because yeah. uh, we all remember studying the causes of World War One, where all the great powers were dragged into a war that nobody wanted because of this 
archaic system of, of international alliances that were out of step with the reality of 1914 Europe. Are we in, in 2022, we might be in a similar situation? Yeah, I wouldn't say that it's the NATO alliance is archaic, but certainly it exists and to protect these countries. So you could, it could then develop into a wider conflagration. Why is it archaic, um, uh, uh, Angela? What's the purpose of, of NATO? Why, why is it suited to 2022? Well, I mean, it was initially found, right, to keep the Russians out, the Americans in and the Germans down. Well, you know, we've moved past that. And for a while, we thought it wasn't to keep the Russians out. But we're back to a situation where, you know, the, the East European members of NATO and the Baltic states joined and wanted to join because they felt threatened by Russia. And Russia is once again threatening them. I think the problem was that when NATO enlarged in 2004 to accept all of these countries, it never envisaged that there could actually be a war with Russia. Uh, and, and of course, we're now in a situation where we probably do have to rethink that. Uh, and of course, that that is Putin's ultimate goal, of course, is to get us to rethink. So do this. we give him that? Do we, if, if he plays, you know, there's all these pieces, why NATO should not offer Ukraine and Georgia membership. Um, NATO won't let Ukraine join soon, the New York Times reports. Uh, NATO honesty on Ukraine could avert conflict with Russia, uh, the FT reports on. Uh, and we go back to 2008, I think, with uh, George W. Bush vowing to press for Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. Is the problem with Bush? Have we made serious errors? Do we need to go back on that? Well, 2008 was certainly an error. And I, the real people who pushed this was the office of the vice president, uh, Vice President Cheney and the people who worked in his office. And they persuaded President Bush that Georgia and Ukraine should be given these membership action plans. Uh, if you read the memoirs of both Condoleezza Rice and Robert Gates, Defense Secretary, uh, Foreign Secretary, uh, they, Secretary of State, they did not want Okay, so, so I accept. So maybe it was Cheney's yeah. fault. But what Cheney are we going to do about it in 2022, Angela? Are we going to make it clear, are we being NATO, that Ukraine and Georgia will not join? Or are we simply capitulating? Is that Munich all over again? Well, first of all, there is no prospect of Ukraine and Georgia joining NATO anytime soon. The German chancellor said that again yesterday. So, in fact, this is not a real issue. And I think for Russia, uh, this is partly a red herring. I mean, they say this is the main thing they want, but um, it, so it's not an issue. Now, there would be there are ways. Of what do they want if they, don't, if they if they accept that that these countries aren't joining NATO? What's the goal here? Well, the goal in Ukraine for the Russians, it's to it's to subordinate and control Ukraine. It's to have a government in Ukraine that's pro-Russian, that uh, ends its um, association agreement with the European Union and then joins the, joins the Russian Eurasian Economic Union. I mean, that's the immediate goal is to is to subdue and suppress Ukraine. Um, clearly, NATO is going to have a, a discussion going forward. By the way, there's been no uh, NATO enlargement to anywhere near Russia since 2004. And there's none planned for the foreseeable future. So I think that is possible. It's possible to come to a compromise on that. But then you have to have both parties, NATO and Russia, sitting down and being willing to negotiate. And so far, we've seen a lot of performative diplomacy. Everyone, the Russians say, you know, we'll talk. The West says we'll talk. But we have to actually see people sit down and see what they put on the table. I don't want to drag up Munich and Hitler all over again, because that's a bit boring. But we did a show with Jeffrey Wheatcroft. I'm sure you know him. He's written a, a wonderfully critical and 
controversial book about Churchill. He was very critical of Churchill. But the one thing he acknowledged that Churchill did was tell a very good story. Um, do we have politicians in the West able? I mean, Biden seems almost unable to speak, let alone to tell a story. Do we? Are we missing uh, a, a, a Churchill or at least a, a James Baker who, who knew his way around the system? Is the crisis not in Russia, but in the West at the moment in February 2022, Angela? Well, we certainly don't have any real strong leaders in the West. That's true. And it's been true for some time. I think a number of us believe, you, you mentioned James Baker, that it would be very good if there was someone from the US side, probably it couldn't be a European, to act as a sort of back channel to go and discuss things with Putin. Henry Kissinger has played that role in the past uh, in both Republican and Democratic administrations. And in thinking through who could this person be, it's very hard to come up with someone. So I think- What about you, know, you Andrew? Couldn't you do it? <laughs> I don't really think it has to be someone. What about who... your Brookings uh, <laughs> colleague, Fiona Hill? Uh, she was on the show recently, big opponent of Donald Trump, admired certainly right. here. I mean, can't we find perhaps a woman who is able to talk to both Putin and the West? I, I'm not sure that a woman would work. It would probably have to be a man with Putin. Um, you know, hopefully we can. Uh, but we seem that there seem, it seems to be in short supply at the moment. And I think everyone. Why? Has... Why are we just missing Churchill? Do we need to re dig dig James Baker back up and drag him back to Washington? You know, the maybe it's just nostalgia, but that quality of political figures, um, you know, it seems to be seems to be lacking. Um, and I think, you know, you have to have some, if you recognize that we're at the sort of end of an era, that we really are in a new era uh, with the Russians, and we have to sort of go back to square one and think about what we can do to get over this, because this do is- Do you buy your, your Brookings colleague, um, uh, Fiona Hill's argument that America and Russia are actually, ironically enough, becoming more and more alike, and that the crisis, the post-industrial crisis in America is rather like the one in Russia? So I like and admire Fiona Hill a lot, and I think it's a great book. That part of the book, I probably wouldn't completely agree with. I mean, there may be some similarities, but there are huge differences, too, uh, between the problems that Russia has and the problems that the U.S. has. What about the apologists for Russia in America? I don't think that, you know, Applebaum seems to articulate a new kind of perhaps new conservative Cold War mentality. But what about the defenders of Putin? I had uh, Joseph Weisberg on the show recently. Um, he uh, He's the author of Russia Upside Down, an mm -hmm. exit strategy for the Second Cold War. He's very, very, uh, very unsympathetic to people who, who, who are critical of, of Putin and of Russia. And the GOP seems to have uh, become like that too. Uh, Atlantic recently run a piece about Fox News abandoning the GOP on, on Russia, perhaps characterized by Tucker Carlson. What do you make of this new sort of culture or atmosphere of apology and sympathy for Russia, both from people like Weisberg and from um, Tucker Carlson? 
Well, so let's start with the Trump wing of the Republican Party. I mean, if you look on Capitol Hill, the sort of more traditional Republicans are still very hardline on Russia. But certainly, I mean, President Trump himself and people who follow him um, take a much more sympathetic view of Russia. Um, partly, I think it's, well, in the extreme, Steve Bannon once tweeted a memorable tweet, you know, Putin will be the savior of the white race. Um, which I think totally misunderstands the fact that Russia has upwards of 20 million Muslims and, you know, that Putin has to be very careful about coexisting with them. But there's a wing of the Republican Party going from kind of white supremacists just to, to Trumpists who aren't necessarily of that ilk. And they see Russia and Putin as a strong leader, a defender of traditional values, uh, you know, someone who's not afraid to use military might and stand up to people. Uh, and then on the other side... So, so jump in again. You, you, you did actually a piece at Brookings with Fiona Hill uh, back in two, uh, last year, in November last year, about Putin, Trump and the road to authoritarianism. I'm not saying you believe that, but is there a connection between Putin and Trump and this road to authoritarianism? Well, I think there's certainly, if you look at the style of um, governing uh, that Trump and his family, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> their style of governing... You know, there's something uh, similar to what goes on uh, in the current Russian regime. Um, and I think the kind, some of the kinds of populism uh, that Trump espoused are those are things that Putin also tries to appeal uh, as a populist. And of course, Putin praised Trump and, and Trump praised Putin. So that that's on one side. But then if you look at the current crisis, the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. So the Joe Weisberg types who write right. books like then, Russia upside down. Right. So they are worried about a war. They think the U these are people who blame the U.S. Uh, for a lot of the problems here. No warmongering. Um, and 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 it's not that they necessarily well the Sanders people don't necessarily admire Putin, uh, but they see Russia in different. A lot of people on the left, both in this country and in Europe, still have some kind of nostalgia for Russia when it was the Soviet Union. They think of it as a socialist country. Well, nothing could be further than the truth. I mean, uh, under Putin, Russia is a strange capitalist country, but it's certainly not a socialist country. So you have the left and the right meeting there. And then I think you have in this country and in Europe, a lot of people who are so critical of the United States in general, that because the United States sees Russia as an adversary, they're more sympathetic towards Russia. Uh, so you certainly have, I don't know what the percentages are, uh, but um, you certainly have people in this country who are more sympathetic to the Russian view. We probably need to, to rewatch that Ferris wheel scene in The Third Man. What about the, the view from, uh, from Europe, uh, Angela? Lots of pieces from Al Jazeera, of all places. Why can't Europe agree on how to deal with the Ukrainian crisis? The Washington Post, the divided Europe, confronts Russia with conflicting goals. Why should Europe be united? Is there any reason? Well, it would be very strange if it was, because obviously Poland and the Baltic states have a very, very different view of Russia and see Russia essentially as an eternal enemy uh, than uh, countries like Italy, Greece, Spain, um, or even, you know, Germany and France. They have, you know, Britain is now much more on the U.S. side there because I think the Russians have poisoned a few too many people on British soil. But, um, but in terms of continental Europe, uh, there is a divide, and I think there always will be because they have vastly different historical experiences with Russia. So you're not, so, so, so I'm listening to you, Angela. You're, you're cheerful, but you're perhaps classically British, cheerfully pessimistic. I mean, how's this thing going to get fixed? How's it going to play out? 
Well, I think it's not going to get fixed for a long time. I think, again, we're going to see in, in the better scenario where there's no war, you're still going to see troops surrounding uh, Ukraine on three sides. And you're still going to see a lot of pressure uh, for, on Russia's part on Ukraine, trying to weaken it, trying to change the government there. Um, and, on the, and then you'll see more divisions, I think, uh, in the West about how to deal with Russia. I think ultimately you probably there probably needs to be a, a more thorough negotiation with Russia on the future of European security. I'm not sure. More diplomacy with, with, with a guy who clearly doesn't play by the, the regular diplomatic rules? How can well, we trust but, him? Well, but the problem is the one of the alternatives to say, okay, we're just not going to talk to him anymore. We don't want to deal with him. Uh, but, you know, the, the problem with that is that he'll make us deal with him because, you know, he'll do something that disruptive again where we have to. So I don't think there is any alternative to that's why you never should mess with a man who's an expert in judo. Angela Stent, the author of Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the rest, offering us a very realistic, complex, not particularly optimistic, but not apocalyptic view of what's happening in Ukraine. If you want to understand, read Angela's book, Putin's World. It came out a couple of years ago, but if anything, I think it's probably more relevant today than it was in 2019. Uh Angela, what else should people be reading these days in mid-February uh, as this crisis unfolds? Should we be reading novels? Should we be reading more books about Putin? So I can re re recommend two recent books about Putin, the system. One of them is by Catherine Stoner of Stanford University called Russia Resurrected. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other one is by Timothy Fry of Columbia University called Weak Strongman. And so I think both of those books will help people get a better understanding of what's happening now. I probably should get them on. Perhaps he's more of a, a strong, weak man than a weak, strong man. <laughs> I'm not sure of the difference. Angela, finally, we have a new feature at the end of Keenon. Very briefly, who runs the world, Angela Stent, author of Putin's <laughs> World? I don't think anybody runs the world. I think we're in a world where, where several people are trying to run the world, but nobody does. And what we have to be look out for is that it's not in sometime in the future China that runs the world. Oh, my God. And that's a story of another show, Angela. We'll have to have you back on, perhaps with your husband, to talk about China and the South China Sea and the crisis in Taiwan. But for the moment, Angela, thank you so much. Really honored to have such a wise, erudite, and articulate woman on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you.